On this week's Behind the Idea, we bite off as much as we can chew by studying Bank of America. Banks are weighty topics that lead to other weighty topics. Mike shares his experience with interest rate discussions. I also have edited many articles on Seeking Alpha that have made this claim about rising interest rates being good for banks, point blank, full stop. Investors would do well to interrogate that question. Later, we can't help but get into the Fed with Mike weighing in again. The Fed is one buyer or seller of securities among many, especially on the longer end of the curve. It's not an all-powerful, omnipotent force in the markets. Is there any avoiding these major economic forces when investing in a bank? And if not, what does that mean for Bank of America shareholders? We discuss on this week's Behind the Idea. Welcome to Behind the Idea. I'm Mike Taylor. And I'm Daniel Schwarzen. Today we are looking at a bank because what could be more fun in a self-torture sort of way than looking at a bank? I don't know if you've ever stood outside a bank and looked at one, but it is torture. Painful. It's awful, especially if it's cold outside and windy and you're just standing outside of a bank just looking at it. Sometimes they have a clock on it so you can at least tell the time and you'll know when a minute has passed by. But for the most part, looking at a bank in the physical world is torture. It's also torture to look at a bank's financial statements, which is what we're going to be doing today. Specifically, we're going to be looking at one of the TBTF too big to fail titans. I guess that's one of the TBTFTs, Bank of America, ticker symbol BAC. The company just reported earnings and shares jumped around 7%. Great quarter, guys. A few weeks before the report came out, Seeking Alpha author Eric Basmagian argued that banks were not well positioned, and most of his fundamental arguments seemed to play out on the Q4 report. So what's going on here? We'll break it down on this episode of Behind the Idea. But before we begin, Seeking Alpha is a website where investors from around the world share their investing ideas. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort. Daniel has a position in PNC Bank. That's ticker symbol PNC. And I, Mike Taylor, have no positions in any stocks discussed. Daniel! Mike! So we have a bearish thesis on Bank of America we both found compelling from, I think we both consider a pretty solid author on Seeking Alpha in Eric Basmagian. Before we get into his thesis, I wanted to quickly wrap our heads around the torturous question of what are banks? So I hate analyzing banks. It's torture for me. I stay away from them. Their asset portfolios are difficult to manage. The business model is one that I don't fully understand. I believe they're highly cyclical. It's just kind of a mess to try and figure one out. It takes a long time to get any confidence. And part of the problem with that is if someone asks me what a bank does, I have a little bit of trouble explaining it. 
So I have my CFA curriculum textbook open, level three, book number, volume two, page 491, banks, background and investment setting. Banks are financial intermediaries involved in taking deposits and lending money. Okay, so that's what a bank is. Takes deposits, lends money. Got anything to add, Daniel? It's like lending club, except that people are in the way to make sure we don't lend our money to the wrong people. People are in the way. Although those, the people at other banks can potentially lend the money to the wrong people. We've seen that happen in the past. Lending club is not the only bank that has made, is it even a bank? Lending club's not the only lender that's made mistakes. Bank of America for example, has made mistakes in the past. Uh, it was a key player in the financial crisis. We're not going to recap the financial crisis. It was 10 years ago and the world's a different place now, but we do want to mention it. It's near and dear to my heart. I began covering the stock market 10 years ago during the financial crisis. And I wrote a few articles that you can still kind of see on thestreet.com about Bank of America and some of the players. Then we had people like, Ken Lewis, John Thane, some really fun, colorful characters and some really fun, colorful uh, action. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. Today, we're here to talk about Eric's thesis. And let's just get right into the first aspect of this bearish thesis on Bank of America. The first leg of the stool is that a flattening yield curve is impairing Bank of America's ability to efficiently generate profits, I think. Daniel, what's going on here? What's Eric saying and what do we think about it? So the case is, I like this as a place to start because the conventional wisdom for banks for so long in the 2010s was rates go up, banks will do well. And if I haven't shouted him out before for this, I'll shout out our colleague Jeff Fisher, who he would always say this is not, you can't make this claim without actually knowing what their asset exposures are, what their loan book exposures are. Like there's not, a, or their deposits are and everything. Like there's not, it's not as simple as this. And on top of that, interest rates are not a monolithic institution. Like Eric's pointing out the yield curve. Like if you say interest rates go up, what maturity are you talking about? What type of interest rate? Yeah, how much credit risk is involved. I also have edited many articles on Seeking Alpha that have made this claim about rising interest rates being good for banks. Point blank, full stop. You, I think investors would do well to interrogate that question and break down what exactly they mean by interest rates, in addition to what Daniel said, which is the sort of asset mix of a particular institution. Right. So Eric makes the point point blank in his article. He says, a steepening yield curve is good for banks, but if short-term rates rise and the cost of funding increases, which is on the long end, that could be a negative. Essentially, banks borrow short and lend long, I think is the standard, where they tend to lend out for longer periods of time, lock in a return on their their assets by getting a steady interest rate. In the meantime, they try to they borrow money by the deposits that they raise from customers. And so his Eric makes this point. He He's writing on December 31st. This was published. And so he only had the Q3 report to work with. 
but he pointed out how total interest income growth is less than the total interest expense growth. I'll put a caveat in a second, but essentially their interest expense dollars are going up at a faster rate than their interest income dollars. So their their margin is in theory narrowing, if you just take it from that perspective. The caveat is that net interest income, which is those two numbers, the, the difference in those two numbers, that's still going up on a nominal basis. Eric argues that this was not likely to be the case in 2019, but he calls out a couple yield curve spreads that are narrowing, which suggests that it becomes harder to lend long and borrow short profitably. Uh, He looks at the 10-year, two-year spread and the 30-year, three-month spread. And the last thing I'll just say is that the Q4 report, if you look at the supplemental information on the Q4 report, they haven't released their 10K yet. Bank of America their annual interest income was up 16% versus a 50% increase in net interest expense. And Q4 specifically, those numbers were 18% and 53%. So this continued to play out. It wasn't like this narrative changed. The company still grew net interest income on a nominal dollar basis, but interest expense was rising faster than interest income. So that's his case. Mike, what do you make of it? It makes it so first of all, praise for hitting one of the things that we just talked about, which is decomposing the interest rate schedule and looking a little more carefully at how the yield curve works just as a general tactic, right? A lot of investors have made this mistake of the interest rates going up or interest rates going down when it's a more complicated story. In terms of the argument, what do I make of it? I think it's solid for the most part. The yield curve flattening seems to be a legitimate trend. Although I would say I'm not sure whether you can forecast based on past activity. Whenever I'm sort of thinking about the directions that longer term interest rates are going to go in just to, you know, I bought a house. I was wondering at the time what my interest rate was going to be, whether I should lock in a fixed mortgage or not. There was always the yield curve can do anything. I think, is there any reason to believe that we can extrapolate in the near term? That's my key question. I think that Eric's done a nice job of assembling evidence, but I'm not a tea leaf reader of the Fed and try to sort of tune out a lot of that stuff. But there's been at least as much talk of lowering short-term rates in the coming year as there's been of an additional hike. I think we're not sure where the direction is going from here. What about you? I think there's also something to be said for just practically. One of the things I saw from the Q3 earnings transcript, I think, I don't think I pulled it from Q4 was, or maybe I pulled it from Q4, I'm not sure, but they said net interest income is up $8 billion in the past four years. But what we often miss here, it wasn't solely driven by higher rates. And so the argument Bank of America might make is that we are able to manage our costs. We're able to pick the right investments or loans to make in terms of maximizing net interest income. Like there's and this is a question we're going to come back to, but there is some operational 
effort put in here and some operational room for error or for success. And so you wonder... Could they just be taking share? Is that another argument Bank of America could, could maybe make? Is, you know, yeah, we're like gaining so. on the competition. We're issuing more loans to credit worthy customers and people are coming to us to borrow as opposed to Wells Fargo or uh, someone else. I think that'll play out more when we get into loan growth, which is uh, is another pillar of Eric's thesis. But I think where it does, in theory, A, you could be taking on more risks to lend out at higher rates, or B, like you could be changing up the mix of what you're lending. You could be, I think there's a lot of standardization here, so I don't want to overplay this. Prime rates or rates pegged to LIBOR, like you're all working with roughly the same numbers, so it's not like you're going to suddenly get wildly different numbers. But if you run your bank efficiently, for example, you can then lend at different rates or whatever else. Like there are ways to mm-hmm. to get this to work operationally. And then I think the most interesting part is you, your point is that we shouldn't just assume momentum on the yield curves. Like there's no real way of knowing where they go. But then also the question of ultimately, if I'm adding more dollars, if my net interest income is going up, even if this is getting a little bit more pressure. And I think, well, they, they uh, well, this is obvious. I, I don't know why I'm looking. They added more dollars from interest than they lost. Like they, their net, their total interest expense went up about six billion, six and a half billion, but their total interest income went up nine billion. So at the nominal dollars does matter. Even if your incremental margin or however you want to think it is narrowing, like they're still making more money. And so could it change? Yes. But in and of itself, I'm not sure. I think, so I think Eric's point is well made. It's yet to be clear. And this is what the market apparently is saying. If you want to ascribe a thought to the fact that Bank of America popped, it's not clear that it matters yet is sort of my take on this part of the thesis. Mm-hmm. Actually, maybe that's a segue to the second pillar of the argument, which is that quantitative tightening is going to, and you can help me clarify the argument because it's I'm just kind of summarizing it, but quantitative tightening by the Federal Reserve is going to reduce liquidity in the banking system and therefore make additional loan origination more difficult and sort of slow down the incremental rate at which Bank of America can do transactions. And I just want to, I'll start by giving a quick endorsement of this argument on the, on the level of banks need to continue to make loans in order to continue to generate profits and generate sustain sustain their level of profitability and to achieve any kind of growth they have to rack up additional transactions so that piece about the business being vulnerable to a slowdown in loan issuance is a valid one my question is more whether quantitative type tightening is actually a meaningful influence on banks lending behavior. What do you think? Well, I don't, I'm not sure if I'm 
knowledgeable enough to answer this one because this this confused me. I'm just trying to think of the mechanics. I think it's actually on the deposit side, maybe. I'm going to postulate something and then either you can shoot it out of the water or our listeners can make fun of me afterwards. But the point of quantitative easing and then quantitative tightening is making funds available that the Fed creates and then puts in bank accounts, essentially. Is that the mechanics? And so then you have... You have. Uh, I'm going to pump the brakes here a little bit. We're both probably out of over our skis here, but I have the quantitative tightening Wikipedia page open, and I'll just read it so that we have a working concept. Quantitative tightening is a contractionary monetary policy applied by a central bank to decrease the amount of liquidity within the economy. The policy is the reverse of quantitative easing, aiming to increase money supply in order to stimulate the economy. The QE policy was massively applied by leading central banks to counter the Great Recession. The prime rates were decreased to zero. Some rates later went into negative territory. Dot, dot, dot. The main goal of quantitative tightening is to normalize interest rates in order to avoid increasing inflation as it becomes expensive to access money and reduces demand for goods and services in the economy. So I don't think it applies to the deposit side. Quantitative easing. And I, just to be kind of a his, history buff, it was they were targeting long maturity assets when they implemented quantitative easing. easing. They were buying long term securities, including mortgage, mortgage securities and treasuries. So securities that historically have a really high degree of credit worthiness, they were buying these to reduce the interest rate pricing in the market. So now the reverse of that would be to sell or let roll off or contract the balance sheet size of the Federal Reserve's holdings in long maturity, high credit worth assets. That would be result in an incremental increase in lending rates and therefore reduce borrower demand for long-term money. It's a sort of deliberate slowdown in the velocity of money via increasing long-term interest rates. So uh, that so a couple things. First thing is, is this contradictory with Eric's thesis about a flattening yield curve? Incrementally, it sounds like quantitative tightening is going to serve to raise longer-term interest rates which all else equal would steepen the yield curve. So is it possible that the longer end of the yield curve will actually rise as a result of this policy? That's one like little wrinkle maybe, but we can also take Eric's argument on it on its face. The second thing is just we can kind of assume like normalizing interest rates means that interest rates are going to be whatever the sort of wherever the borrower and lender agree to set the rate the to the so in a way it's just the interest rates are just marginal rates there will whatever is the most recent prevailing interest rate so stepping outside of the sort of very short term impacts of quantitative easing is there an argument that the normalization of interest rates may actually just there may not be a sustained price impact to interest rates or to mortgages as a result of the tightening. I think maybe it just rolls off the balance sheet and then that incremental buyer is gone. 
and then the rates just stabilize. Who's to know where they're going to stabilize? It's kind of like the argument in the stock market where you have long-term holders or index funds are propping up stock prices. We kind of hear that sometimes. And it's like, yeah, they're not selling. So they're not affecting the marginal price. But does it really matter at the end of the day? It seems like it's a little bit mm, iffy, maybe. Well, and at, at the risk of wading back in after having my credibility tattered. Torpedoed. Uh, <laughs> bang. <laughs> the, the, two, the two thoughts I have are, or three thoughts I have are, to your point, in theory, I don't, again, I'm going to get out over my skis by using the word Keynesian economics. But if you talk about fiscal policy, Keynesian economics is all about supplementing demand when the natural market demand is low, and then pulling it back when the natural market demand is fine. And so this seems like a parallel where, yes, it's understood that you can't have a free lunch. If quantitative easing was supposed to be a positive, then in theory, quantitative tightening should be a negative. Mm. But if the idea was to stimulate the market until the point that it could stand on its own two legs, and now you want to make sure it doesn't go crazy, then in theory, there's a way to pull the strings just right to get this to work. In theory, I think. Am I, am I being an idiot for saying that? I'm going to pass the opportunity. <laughs> Don't answer. To call <laughs> well, first of all, I just um, I think this is my first opportunity to bring out a new character that I've been working on, which is the market stock market cliche bot, and uh, I'm going to use it. So here, so here comes I have here he comes the market uh, cliche bot. Beep beep boop. Keynesian economics. <laughs> Auto self-destruct sequence initiated. Wow. wow. Thank you, Market Cliché Bot. Market Cliché Bot is designed to say a market cliché and then self-destruct <laughs> immediately. <laughs> so I have a lot of them. There's, I ran a prototype <laughs> run of like 10,000. So they're wow. just, okay. they're laying around my house. They're, they're about a foot tall. They have cute little red noses and light bulbs for eyes. We'll see whether people like the market cliche bot character, but there he was to repeat the Keynesian economics thing. Back to the question of whether your argument about Keynesian unwind is valid. I think you hit both sides of it. And I think I was hitting one side of it. I was saying that the incremental pricing is probably the thing that's most, the marginal pricing of interest rates is the thing that's most affected by quantitative tightening. And you also, you said that in theory, there's no such thing as a, a free lunch, but I think eventually the market just starts using one of my big beefs with the people who posit central banks as kind of these bogeymen and have a quasi sort of religious obsession with central banks as these <laughs> figures that control our lives and that we don't fully understand and therefore kind of hate, but must always keep in our minds and hearts is that the Fed is one buyer or seller of securities among many, especially on the longer end of the curve that it's not an all powerful omnipotent force in the markets if it were, then we wouldn't be having this discussion about normalizing or 
supporting the market in times of stress because the Fed would be the only setter of prices, but it's not. So that's kind of where I land on this. I don't know enough to know for sure, but I kind of split the difference at the Fed is a force that you should look at and take some interest in, but it's not, you shouldn't substitute your views on the Fed with the views on the entire market for any set of financial assets, I think. So I kind of, that's lame maybe, but that's where I kind of land. I wind up splitting the difference on a lot of these questions. And I think I would wind up splitting the difference on Eric's question around quantitative tightening. So I, I think I get it more than, more than on my first read, just on the basis of, okay, this is an incremental drag on loan issuance. I buy that, but I don't know if it's a prevailing force. So I see what he's saying, but it's kind of like, eh, maybe this gets like 20 or 30% of all the factors I would weigh when looking at trying to forecast loan growth or continued, continued incremental business for Bank of America specifically. Well, and I guess the, I said that most of his thesis played out in the Q4 quarter. Obviously, this this is not a part of the quarter. This is not a literal thing that you can measure, except for the interest expenses rising. I guess because he's our his argument, and this is where I had that deposits thing in my mind. His argument was that funding costs are rising, and I think of deposits as your funding costs. But I think that's at the short end of the yield curve. Deposit rates are governed by short because they're demand security, so they have to be available at any time. So it's, they're governed more by short-term interest rate setting, which I think is more in command of the Fed. Just to tie that one up from my end, I you know I think what I said before about short-term rates directions being unclear at this point is kind of where I'd fall on that. Although I do have, I, maybe this is a hot take opportunity. Why? Bank, Moynihan, the CEO of Bank of America said, and the analyst kind of praised him for being able to keep deposit rates low, even in the face of rising interest rates. This, I think, is a source of potential socialist saber rattling. I could see Elizabeth Warren getting up in arms about something like this. But I'm also just curious, why do you think that's possible? Is it just that deposit holders are so used to low interest rates that they don't demand it? Is it possible that the industry is so concentrated that they're able to collude and set interest rates based on a kind of cartel behavior? Like, what do you think about about that? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't, I wouldn't be able to answer conclusively, but I think it is people used to be to low rates. I think it is, we're still relatively early in the rate hike cycle. And I think it is the, I think there is market power. I think banks compete on cutting fees, which they've previously raised. I know as a trivial example, I used to bank at Bank of America and then they added a fee on all transactions abroad, a 3% fee. And so I left for PNC, which doesn't charge me that. But that's, you know, there's, it wasn't an interest. This was at the we were still 2011 or 12 or something. But the point is that I think there is sort of, it's not how people worry about banks. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I just, I, I don't know. High when search the last costs, high switching costs. People don't like to mess around with their accounts. 
Yeah. I'd, I'm still bank with my bank, even though I don't like it. I think that's probably what most customer experiences with banks. They're like, ah, oh, God. Mm. No, well. <laughs> yeah. And I guess maybe that's the force behind this. So the, the last piece of the thesis then is more on the operational side. It's real estate growth and asset growth. And I think his point is basically housing is slowing and bank asset growth is slowing. And so that's not going to be good for Bank of America. And yeah, I mean, a loan growth is where you're, that's where you're actually going to make your money, right? It's also where you're going to make a lot of your big mistakes, but it's in theory where you're going to make your money. Mm-hmm. And I looked at the numbers in Q4, they had three, they're basically for each of these residential mortgage growth, commercial mortgage growth, and just asset growth. In each of them, year over year growth from Q4 2017 to 18 was around 3%, 3 to 3.7%. Quarter over quarter growth was really minimal except for overall asset growth. Overall asset growth was still 0.7% basically, which is more or less in line with a 3.2 annual rate. But yeah, so so there's not a lot of growth there. I think this feels like a... And it feels like it's smuggled into the core thesis. I think the core thesis is that the yield curve is not favorable. This is either here's another problem or it's a, by the way, this is a cyclical stock and the cycle is turning and like people are crazy to not to, to want to get in front of the cycle. That's sort of how I take it. What do, what do you think? My reaction to this was first, we know that a housing slowdown can have negative impact on banks or that was a key factor in the financial crisis and it was exacerbated by all sorts of uh, interconnections and fragility among the different banks interbank lending and a great you know tremendously expanded leverage and banks of today are not the same as the banks in 2006 2007 lending standards are not the same as they were at the peak of last cycle. But again, I go back to, you know, management at Bank of America seems to agree with just this general point that you need to conduct incremental business activity and you need to issue incremental loans to sustain your level of activity and to sustain your profitability. People pay back loans eventually. You need to issue new ones to sort of keep pace with where you are, let alone grow. That's my broad framework. One question I had was, could we apply the MLP argument to housing and mortgage issuance? That is, banks are intermediaries. So just because home prices decline, does that necessarily mean that lending activity will slow down? And my response to that rhetorical question is yes, because sellers will wait, will try to wait out a downturn or lower home prices. And buyers may also try and if they see that prices are falling, they may wait and try to catch an even lower price. So I can see some kind of consumer behavior affecting a, a dry up in mortgage issuance activity. Continually rising prices are likely to fuel additional transactions. People have fear of missing out, all of that stuff. I get the basic argument that a housing slowdown would would hurt Bank of America based on all of that, both on the theoretical side and on the 
financial crisis side. But to the question of whether that's happening right now, I looked at the Case-Shiller home price index and I noticed for the first time in a long time that it travels in waves. So the way the housing market seems to go is, or has gone over the past decade, is February through July or August are these sharp increases in home prices. And then they curve down and flatten from sort of October through February. So house buying is seasonal and home price setting is seasonal and probably liquid transaction volume is seasonal. And so I think there's a rationale, first of all, just for year over year comparisons when you're looking at banks. And second, a sequential slowdown in housing could very well just be a part of an annual cycle in loan activity. I guess assuming that, you know, mortgages and real estate loans are sort of the prime driver of all the lending activity. So I'm not quite buying it. There are also headlines out there just recently that are all saying, you know, maybe the housing slowdown has found its bottom. Maybe fears of housing slowdowns are overblown. No, those are just news articles and Eric's a smart analyst. So I wouldn't say that the news articles overwhelm the argument here, but, and potentially their contrarian indicator. But there's evidence going against this, both on the, in the sort of annual cycle argument and just in, on the secular side, whether there's actually a slowdown taking place seems to not, there seems to be no consensus around that at the moment. So I get what he's driving at, but I'm not sure I'm, I'm not sure I'm into this, this one. Well, I just, I sort of come back to what I said when I posed the question. To me, it's just all a piece of the same argument. And maybe that's, that's one of the core questions we have coming out of this. Is Bank of America just a cyclical stock? A housing slowdown would be a sign of a cyclical slowdown, which would be bad for slowing business activity, slowing loan growth, et cetera. At some point, less, I don't, I agree with your rhetorical answer that MLP, like this is not, volume is not going to stay where it is. There's too many other factors that would correlate with a drop in price to affect Bank of America. And so I think it's it's sort of a canary in the coal mine argument about the cycle more than a mm-hmm. stand. And just to give some context, I did a quick math, 28.7% of Bank of America's loans are residential or commercial mortgage. So that's that's important, but it's also the you know it's not the only driver in their business, and so yeah, I mean I think it's worth highlighting. But but I would say to that just that all the everything in their in their asset portfolio is levered to the economy and is highly correlated with whatever happens in housing. I think the U.S. economy is so. Any sort of incremental financial transactions are going to be governed by the similar forces. You know, if it's business loans or if it's revolving credit or if it's their wealth management business. I mean, if the stock market crashes, they're going to have outflows because that's what happens. So like all this stuff is intercorrelated. I think to me, the question is kind of, I think the answer is banks are, <laughs> is bank stock cyclical? The answer is yes, they are. By being lever- by being a play on the yield curve, by being 
sort of levered and driven by incremental financial transactions, by people raising money to do stuff, to buy assets, they have to be levered to the economic cycle. But then I think the follow-up question is, what would it look like if management were responsibly preparing for a downturn? And mm-hmm. I, I think that, you know, one of the things we did, you know, Jamie Dimon is sort of heaped tons of praise for his conduct with JP Morgan Chase through the financial crisis, the conservatism, the sort of refusal to take on in credit risk or get involved with some of the hairier aspects of the mortgage market in the housing boom cycle. Potentially, if you were concerned about this, you would be looking for signs that management is sensitive to adverse outcomes and is is doing things to prepare for that. And in the earnings report and in the call, what I, my just general gist of what I saw was Moynihan acknowledges the possibility of negative economic growth, but they are planning for a relatively strong year this year. Their research indicates that the economy is robust, but I think the concern that you would have overall is just is is there a, a Charles Prince at City Group just dance until the music stops playing effect going on here? And I think if you look at the economy on a trailing quarter basis, then you have some the information available to us right now is I think consistent with late cycle economic activity. The stock market has kind of rolled over a little bit. Anecdotally, the housing market in my, in DC is a little softer this year than it's looked in the past years. You know, there's trade war, there's government shutdown. There are factors that should maybe cause people to think a little more prudently. My concern here would be is if you believe that, then I'm not sure that we're seeing a lot of evidence that Bank of America is properly positioned for such an outcome. And maybe it shouldn't be. If things continue to boom, then they're well positioned. But that would be if you assume that there's a slowdown or contraction coming to the economy, I think you would look at the evidence here and probably conclude that given that, Bank of America would be wrong-footed. So what do you make then, maybe to cut to the chase here, what, what do you make then of the fact that the stock went up as much as it did after earnings? Like, What do you think is... What do you think the market, is it just that the market refuses to prepare for a downturn or the participants in the market? Or what do you, what do you make of the, the response here? Let me just pull up the chart real quick. Yeah, up, up after earnings. But I think you could just make a kind of argument that, so it's at 29. It looks like it's averaged around. 30 throughout the year 2018. And it looks like the declines were part of the broad market sell-off that we saw in late December. So from one perspective, it popped on earnings. From another perspective, it's recapturing the present value that it held through much of the past year. The You could make this argument and I wouldn't totally discard it. The market had been pessimistic and this isn't bullish. It's just, oh, things are normal instead of bad. And that would be, I, I would listen to that. That seems reasonable. What do you think? 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's reasonable. I think it's it's again a good reminder of don't over anchor on the most recent news. I think the the one piece that Eric didn't really discuss in his article, and I didn't look at his older he had linked to an older article he did. I didn't look at how much he discussed it there, was valuation. Bank of America I think they're a tiny bit up since I did this math, but I have them at about an eleven PE. 1.15 book value, 1.6-ish tangible book value, return on equity of a little under 11% with 8% earnings growth expected for 2019. Those could be top of cycle numbers in the sense that you, the market is pricing in a dip, but otherwise they don't look like crazy expensive multiples on Whatever we think about Bank of America, it is one of the industry leaders. It hasn't had the headline noise that Wells Fargo has dealt with over the last few years. That may be explaining what's going on in this near term. And also, it leaves open the question of how much is it worth picking apart all these different drivers versus just staying on that high level of well, here are the numbers and it's a bank. You know, we, we grappled with this when we dealt with Bright House Financial, the insurance company, and we decided that that was kind of too hard. With a bank, obviously we have in recent memory, things can go really bad really fast. I don't know how much you need to factor if that means you just avoid, if it means you're still going to take the books on face value or just, I don't know. What what do you think? What, what sort of your takeaways or, or final approaches to the company based on all this i think if you're going to do a top down it depends on your level of faith in your here's my opinion i don't see a reason to differentiate bank of america from any other bank stock based on what we've talked about today and that's not a knock on eric by any means it's just that my confidence level it has not risen to the degree that i think bank of america is really likely to underperform relative to peers. And this is so, you know, in honor of the, the late John Bogle, who, you know, I think is one of the great investment minds of in history. Uh, this is an argument for just diversify and just, you know, you, 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 if you're an investor, you can be compensated for the risks associated with holding banks but why take company specific risk i do, and then on the on the contrary side to that you know i think the financial crisis showed us that there are tremendous rewards to having a well supported variant view on this sector and because it's so opaque and difficult to understand investors can be rewarded through mispriced assets for doing diligence, going through available information about banks, loan portfolios, and other activities, and making reasoned valuation judgments. But I don't feel like that's where I'm at at this stage. For my own personal approach, I'm not fine. I, I, like I said at the top of the show, I hate banks. It's so hard. I don't want to do the work, I guess. What about you? Well, 
Yeah, I, so I own PNC. It's stock I've had for a long time. I don't have a... It's it's multiples are similar to Bank of America, and it has similar characteristics and all of these issues. It has less of the sort of too big to fail or the different. It's a little bit easier to understand, but not a lot easier. We're still a major regional bank. Um, but yeah, I mean, it seems like I think it's fine to have exposure to a bank. I don't think PNC has too much risk specifically attached to it, either on the long or short side. And I think Eric's point, I think he used Bank of America as an example. And so to your point, right, there's not, none of the arguments he's making are really specific to Bank of America. The yield curve affects all banks. I And I checked PNC as a comparison. They're having the same issue in terms of interest income and interest expense not rising at the same rate. There's not a lot that set that is a Bank of America problem. You you sort of made the point about looking at the conference call and how Bank of America doesn't seem especially positioned for this. I would also suspect that if you read most bank transcripts, you would see people talking about excitement about the potential <laughs> to um, Fair enough. continue to grow. I think that you know, I think it's been. I think banks especially feel like they've been held back for a long time and they were, are hopeful that they still have room to run, which, and Eric's argument is also not that we're going to have a repeat of the crisis. It's more that. Right. They, there are massive, he calls them massive headwinds in 2019. So I don't know. I, I think you're right. I, I don't think there's a ton of specific problems raised with Bank of America. It's interesting to look at the company as a bellwether or an example for the sector and whether or not I I don't walk away from this as bearish as I do on some sectors. I I think last week we talked healthcare. I'm still more concerned about understanding what's going on in healthcare, which by the way, probably means there are better opportunities in that sector as well on the long side. But here it, it, yeah, there's not a lot of, I don't, have a great conviction either way. I guess one thing just to kind of put some positive elements forward, I do buy Eric's overall approach. I think one thing that we should keep in mind is that the common equity of banks and financial institutions is highly levered. And so even small changes in expectations can result in fairly substantial price corrections. So I do sort of believe the idea that if the market's more optimistic and a slowdown isn't priced in, that the stock can get hit pretty hard and that there's that caution is justified on that basis. And I think maybe that's an underappreciated aspect of investing in bank common stocks. Uh, among investors. So that part I do, I think there's something there. I, and to be clear, I think Eric's analysis is, is good. I, I wasn't trying to gainsay it. I just, the ultimate case to me, I think there's still room for it to play out. What do you, how would you, maybe as a last thing, how would you, what would your approach be to deal with that besides avoiding banks? What would your approach be to deal with that sort of, or what would it just be to avoid banks? The leverage factor and the fact that the common equity is just is outranked by the debt on the balance sheet to do about it 
your conviction should be proportionate to the level of risk you're taking. And maybe the sizing within your portfolio should be proportionate to that as well. So I would avoid taking low conviction positions in these types of stocks for myself. I would also size in proportion and I would be, I would try and manage that risk and have a really strongly set plan for trading in the event that I'm not correct. It's less a what can you do about it from an analytical perspective and more maybe a risk management and portfolio management question for me. Okay. Which sounds like a cop out maybe to our listeners, but hey, listeners, uh, it's a tough question. So whatever. Here for the tough question. (laughs) Hey, we hate banks and we did a bank. Is this our first bank? It's our first bank. We got there. I think it was good. No, I think that hopefully it gives you all ideas of how to kind of where to go with a bank. I think it's it's interesting for me. I'm going to think about this more as I continue to look at my portfolio and how to better manage it. Yeah, so, I think I got somewhere too. Yeah. We learned something, Daniel. That's a great place to end. Let's end. Let's end there. We learned something. Agreed. We learned we're not going to stand outside Bank of America. And watch it because it's torture. (laughs) (laughs) It's so bad. It's so bad. Okay. All right. Take care, Daniel. Let's go. Bye. Bye, Mike. Thanks for listening to Behind the Idea. We hope you enjoyed it more than Mike did. If you did, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever else you encounter Behind the Idea. If you didn't, leave a review or email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com so we can do better. We're tackling another thorny situation next week, so we could use all the criticism you can muster. You can subscribe to this on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get podcasts. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thanks for listening, and see you next week on the